Thank you very much. The, we are in John chapter 6 today, and this is kind of part two of last week, where we were talking about Jesus as the bread of life. I should open this up before we got up here. And I, I want to start with this, this quote from a, a Christian pastor that's long gone. His name is A.W. Tozer. Anyone remember A.W. Tozer? A.W. Tozer, um, here, here's, here's what he said. The very first line in his book called The Knowledge of the Holy, the very first line is this. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. Now, some would say that's an overstatement. What you believe about God is the most important thing about you. I, I think it's utterly true because what you believe about him informs what you believe about everything else. What you believe about God informs what you believe about yourself, who you are. What you believe about what's the problem in this world, the solution to that problem, what the future holds. All these things are informed, if not controlled, by what you believe about God. And so today we're going to have some challenging concepts today out of the Gospel of John about God's sovereignty. And whenever you bring up God's sovereignty, and how he, he, he ultimately controls his universe. In light of Satan's rebellion, in light of our own free choices, God still has this overarching control of his world. And John talks about this a lot. And so I didn't just want to bypass this because it's a difficult subject. I want to use an analogy I've used before, and that is um, God is infinite, amen? And you are not. We are not. We're finite. So I love this building. It's beautiful. I love the high ceilings. So I always say that ceiling is, I don't know, 25, 30 feet at the peak. That's our capacity to grasp the infinite God. We are deeply limited to grasp the ways of this infinite God. We need to push that ceiling as far as we can in pursuit of him through his word, through thinking deep, through prayer, through community. But we'll never be infinite. We will always be finite, contingent upon him to keep us in existence for eternity. I have this, this is a sidebar. This is just, just lengthen the sermon, by the way. I have this belief, I think it's a beautiful belief. You think about it and challenge me on it later. Even when we get to eternity, even when we, we stand before him in the new heavens and new earth, we're still finite. We're still contingent upon him for existence. And we still don't know. We're still not omniscient. I believe every day in eternity, I'll learn more and more and more. I'll wake up if we sleep, and I'll learn something new that day. I'll go, whoa! What amazing God we serve. And the next day, we'll beat that. Isn't that cool? So think about that, whether it's true or not. But nonetheless, today, I want to challenge you with some stuff, and I want us to take the, the attitude of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar um, thought he was the all in all and more. And God said, oh, really? You think you hung the moon, do you? So God made Nebuchadnezzar crazy. This is in Daniel chapter 4. And Nebuchadnezzar crawled around in the grass and ate grass like he was a cow. And God brought him back from his insanity and this is what Nebuchadnezzar said. 
At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Not mine, Nebuchadnezzar saying. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Not mine. As you know, Babylon has not been um, inhabited since these days. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? There's the sovereign power of God. With that power, we add mercy, grace, and love. And we serve an amazing God. So today we're going to talk about this sovereignty, especially as it regards our salvation. Let me remind you of last week. Last week we saw Jesus being the bread of life when he fed the 5,000. We learned to believe in Jesus is to be united with him in a relationship that brings life, eternal life. The eating of the bread, drinking of the cup, is a union with Christ that has this mystical truth to it that I'm united with him and I receive eternal life. Jesus is the only means to gain this life we learned last week. And he gave up his life. Here's the, the um, what's, the, what's that? It's a, the conundrum or a, 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 I just lost the word. He gave up his life so we could have life. What do you call that? A paradox, a irony, whatever it is. He gave up his life so I could gain life. No one else has done that but Jesus. It's compared to Moses' ministry under the law that did not ultimately bring life. Everyone died. All who ate the manna in the wilderness died. But Jesus brings a life that is certain and everlasting. Thus, he is the bread of life. Today's message, we're going to take it a step further. And we're going to see that God is the one who initiates and makes certain your salvation. It is not we ourselves. Jesus tells his disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. God is the initiator and is not we. We're going to jump in at John 6.28. So open your Bibles to John 6.28. If you need a Bible, the ushers will bring you one. Raise your hand if you need a Bible. Okay. Everyone has a Bible. Wonderful. The background here, I'm just dropping in the middle of a context. Jesus tells them when they come to him for more food, they want more bread because their bellies were full. And he says, don't work for the food that perishes, but work for the food that lasts for eternal life. So we'll drop into that on verse 28. So chapter 6, verse 28. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Interesting. They asked, What do we do to the works of God? Plural. He brings it to a singular. This is the work of God, that you believe upon him whom he has sent, who, which is who? Okay. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Which I said last week how, how ridiculous this is because he just fed 5,000 people with a few pieces of bread and a few fish. Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread for heaven from heaven for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world and they said to him sir give us this bread always and Jesus said to them I am the bread of life so here's where we hit the heart of my message today 
Whoever comes to me shall never thirst. Whoever believes in me, excuse me, whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Jesus takes it from filling my belly and quenching my thirst to that yearning I have to know God loves me and will keep me. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Why don't they believe? That's what we're going to look at right now. Verse 37. All the Father gives to me will come to me. So, how many come to Jesus? All the Father gives to me. All the Father gives to me will come. Just follow the the sequence here from all the Father gives will come. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Again, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let me walk you through the progression of thought here. Verse 37. All the Father gives to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. So, if the, whoever the Father gives, they will come to Jesus. And whoever comes, Jesus will never cast out. So, do you see the certainty here? And I want you to have in your head right now the question, and it's a serious one. Have I come to Jesus? Not talking about me, talking about you. All the Father gives to me will come, and whoever comes I will never cast out. In verse 39, Jesus it is the will that I will not lose any he has given me. I will raise them all up on the last day. So we're going to see here that is God, this is the doctrine of election, doctrine of predestination, these things that people tend to hate. And I want to tell you, do not hate them. Do not hate them. Love, love the concept that God is the one who is the author and finisher of our salvation. He is the one that initiated it, and he will complete it. We'll see that today. I'm getting ahead of myself. Simply put, if you're here today and you've trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've seen him, that is the concept, he's been presented to you. Here, literally, they saw him and rejected him. John chapter 20 tells us, blessed are those who have not seen him yet believe. We've seen through the testimony of others. And once you've come to faith, then you've seen through what he's done in your life. But all who come to Jesus, all the Father gives will come. He won't cast any out. So he won't get sick of you someday and say, I'm so tired of you, you're out of my family. And I won't lose any. Meaning if you're really saved, you won't walk away. God will keep you. I want you to think of a family I know our family sometimes can be very dysfunctional, truly. Most of us have relatively functional families, amen? Oh, come on, help me out here. (laughs) Most of us have relatively functional families. Some of us have deeply dysfunctional families. We could look in the dictionary and there'd be your family's picture, you know? But, um, and and I say it this way, you know, God adopted us, right? So, so, and I have an adopted son. Lucas is my birth son. He looks just like me. 
this is your future. <laughs> um, but, but I have a, a younger son than him that's adopted, that, that he's in my family, and I will never let him go. He can do whatever he wants. I, he will always be my son. If that's true in broken human families, how much truer in God's family? All the Father gives to me will come to me. I will not cast any out. You know, when your children, my children, they, they, they do things that break your heart, you don't say, you're not my son anymore, get out. At least a reasonable person doesn't say that. God will never say it. And you can't walk away from his love. Verse 40, once again, for this is the will of my father. Remember what Nebuchadnezzar said? No one can thwart his will. This is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. None soever will be lost. From God's perspective, there's absolute certainty on who will be saved. It is God's work to save and to keep saved. So I, I want to I present to you some terms here that, that you're all familiar with, or, or most of you are probably familiar with these. The word eternal security. Your salvation is eternally secure. That's what this passage is teaching. So, so, so we use this term all the time, you know, I believe in eternal security, that once God saves you, he keeps you. You've heard that term before? How about assurance of salvation? You can be assured of your salvation. Now, I'm going to ask the question, what is the assurance based on? We'll get to that when we get to John 15. We'll spend a lot of time there. But I have assurance of salvation. God loves me and will keep me. Another one we use all the time, I hear it all the time, once saved, always saved. I don't like this one. It's not that I don't believe. I, what I'm saying today is if you've entered the kingdom of, of the family of God, he keeps you. He won't kick you out. But once saved, always saved is overused today to refer to, well, when I was 14, I said a prayer someone told me to say at a youth group meeting. So I gained salvation then. It doesn't matter how I live my life between now and then. Even, I've even had parents tell me, well, my son denies Jesus today. But he said the prayer back when he was 14, so I know he's saved. Once saved, always saved. And, and that's missing the point of what this text is about. Because not only is this salvation we enter into something God initiates and accomplishes in me, it changes who I am. And I don't turn around later and say, I don't believe in that God. That's, that's one of the assurances of salvation is I'm continuing in the faith. Jesus said, he who endures to the end will be saved. That's the next phrase. Here's the phrase I like. It's called the perseverance of the saints. Have you heard that phrase? Yeah. Perseverance of the saints comes out of the Reformation. And the next phrase also, what's called the preservation of the saints. These two come out of the Reformation. Perseverance of the saints is the idea that if you know Jesus and you, the Holy Spirit is in you, you will persevere in believing. So when Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved, because those who are truly saved will persevere in the faith. Paul at the end of his life said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And there's stored up for me in heaven a treasure, a, a crown of righteousness. So that's what he says there, for all who believe. So I prefer these terms. When God brings us into his family, we need to persevere. But he preserves us. He keeps us, the preservation of the saints. So I know I'm raising a lot of questions here. I, 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 if, if, if you're like me, as soon as I say A, you go, yeah, but well, what about B? 
And we'll get to a few of those B's. Some of them we won't answer today. We'll get to them later in the series on John. But listen to these passages that talk about God. God is the one who brings people into his family. It's not our intelligence, our good works, or our good looks. Listen to John 10, 24 to 30. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus said to them, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. But this is difficult for them because they believe by being Israelites, they are the people of God. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. But listen to this verse. My Father who has given them to me, building on John 6, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So here we have this idea of this preservation, that God keeps you. Once Jesus gets you in there, so imagine you're in Jesus' hand, and Jesus is in the Father's hand, and no one can take you out of Jesus' hands, and no one can take you out of the Father's hands. Satan can't do it, you can't do it. But perseverance of the saints and preservation of the saints, it seems that we have a role in walking forward in our, our walk with Jesus that gives us assurance. We don't save ourselves and we don't keep ourselves saved. He does that. But how do you know you're one of the saved? <laughs> so let me read to you Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, it says work out, not work for. You're not earning something. You've already been given it. Now, there's implications for that salvation, how you live your life, and you work it out as Christ is in you, conforming you to his image. You work out that salvation in your daily life as the character of Christ is being worked in you. But is it all on me? No. What does verse 13 say? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. A salvation for which God paid a priceless amount must be taken with the utmost seriousness. Work out with fear and trembling. Or one translation, with awe and reverence. Our faith is an active faith of keeping the faith, of fighting the good fight, It is a persevering faith. But simultaneously, God is actively working to accomplish his good will in us. This is what he tells the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6. I am sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you, and when did he do that? The day he opened your eyes to Jesus. He began a good work in you. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the second coming. As we persevere, he preserves. So, so I just want to stop. A lot of information, I got a lot more. Are you with me? Am I making sense? This is what I always say. If you're visiting today, I want you to know, 
my desire is not that you agree with me. It's nice, because I think I'm right, but, <laughs> but that's not my desire. My desire is that you understand me, then run to the scriptures yourself to see if what I say is true. And today, I only have so much time to bring so much scripture. There's a lot out there that talks on this topic of salvation. What role is God and what role is mine? Let's jump into that. So now let's specifically look at God's sovereignty over salvation. I want to discuss the, the role scripture says about God accomplishing your salvation. He does it. But you have a part two. What do you do? Hello. You have to believe. If you don't believe, you, you don't, you're not in. So I brought this silver dollar with me today that I'd pull out of my pocket if I had to put it there. It's in my office, in my briefcase. <laughs> um, so imagine I have a silver dollar. I've used this many times before, and this, this illustration for me, it doesn't answer all questions, but it gives a framework. The head side of the coin is God's sovereignty in the world. Oh, a, this is a silver dollar. Oh my goodness, this is even, um, even, oh. <laughs> Sorry, Tim, if this was, if this was pure minted, it just lost value because I touched it. So the head side of the coin here is God's side of the coin, his sovereignty in life, over all of life. As, as, as Nebuchadnezzar said, he can do as he pleases in the heaven and on earth, and no one can say to him, why'd you do that? Paul says the same thing in Romans 9. God is controlling his earth in some way. But the other side of the coin is the fact that you have responsibility, what we call free will. Human responsibility. That's true in scripture too. So they're both true. God has a plan that will be accomplished. His will will not be thwarted of, of our salvation. But we have a responsibility to believe and to hang on. Both are in scripture, and we come across a passage that says, hey, God is in control of all. God is the one who initiates, who, who, who preserves and finalizes your salvation. We're going to preach it's God's work. When we get to the passage that says, you must believe or you're not in. You must endure or you're not in. He who endures to the end is saved. We're going to preach that. Here's the problem with this two truths from scripture, just like a coin. I can only see one at a time. I'm either looking at the head side of the coin or the tail side of the coin. I can't see them both at the same time. If I had a mirror that God gave me to show me how I can see his sovereign plan that will be accomplished and my role in using my responsibility to believe and to remove all tension and all questions, wouldn't that be beautiful? Maybe in eternity, but he didn't give it to us yet. One time I gave this illustration in the class and a guy um, said, oh, you can see both sides. Just put it up like this and you can see both sides. <laughs> I told him to get out of the class because he, he ruined my analogy. <laughs> Today we're looking at the head side of the coin, God's side of the coin. And we do not want to bring God down so that we can save our free will. So let's, let's let God be God today and every day. But as we look at this passages from John and, and recognize, as Hebrews says, we're talking to Jesus, but it refers to the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. He is the author and finisher of our faith. We are the blessed recipients. 
I want to challenge a belief today that seems reasonable, but actually diminishes God. And this is based upon what God has revealed about himself. That belief that I want to challenge is known as the sovereignty of man. Because we, the sovereignty of God offends us. We have, we have this strange belief that we are neutral and we get to choose our ter- you know, everything, and God is some passive agent waiting for us to choose. God is not passive, and we are not neutral. We'll see that. So let me show you how God is not passive. John 6, 43 to 45. The next two passages are straight from John. After he said, all the Father gives to me will come to me. All who come to me I will not cast out. I will not lose any. I will raise them all up on the last day because this is God's will. After he says that, same conversation, as people are challenging him, he says this in John 6, 43, about 15 verses later. Um, no, a few verses later. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you catch how harsh, not harsh, but how, how definitive that is? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. He's the initiator. He draws. Conversation goes on about eating my flesh, drinking my blood. We saw that last week. So we get to John 6, 61, where they're really struggling with what Jesus is saying here. And some of them are saying, I can't do this. I'm out. So, but Jesus, knowing himself, that, verse 61, knowing himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. See, the Spirit of God initiates your eternal life. He's the one that brings it to you. The flesh, this isn't talking about the flesh and that your temptation. This means your humanity. Your humanity doesn't determine your future salvation. The Spirit of God does. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Verse 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So he's, he's talking to the crowd, but he's kind of mentally pointing at Judas. And he said, so here it is again, even, even stronger statement. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So do you feel the weight of the sovereignty of God in your salvation? What are some questions it raises? Honestly, what are some questions it raises? Do I have a choice? Is this fair? Purpose? I like that one. What about my mother? Is she chosen? What if she's not chosen? And all of a sudden panic strikes. So we have all sorts of questions as humans that we should have. But this is one of those things that we say, therefore, because this panics me, because this worries me, because this challenges my thinking, I don't believe it. Don't go there. Let God be God. Recognize there's a tail side of the coin that we haven't even talked about today, which is the theme of John, by the way, that you might believe. So why is salvation limited to those whom God grants it? 
Or stated another way, why can't I come to him when I want to, if I want to? Why do I have to have his permission or his empowerment to do so? John answers this in chapter 8, verse 34 to 36. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. This addresses the question of neutrality. We're not neutral. We are slaves to sin. Slaves don't set themselves free. Someone must come free them. The idea of redemption, Jesus redeemed you. Redemption is a word from the culture of slavery, that I'll purchase you out of slavery to freedom. We were slaves to sin. We don't set ourselves free. Jesus sets you free. And if he sets you free, you will be free. And that is a beautiful truth. So, so if I was a slave, but Christ set me free, guess what I'm not a slave to anymore? Does that affect your daily life? It's sure better. One of the big lies of Christianity, this is another sidebar, just added to my sermon again, is I'm saved, but I'm still a slave. No. If you believe you're still a slave, how are you going to live? Like a slave. If you believe in set free, but yet that, that, that evil ex-master sin comes at you, and it's powerful, step on it. I'm like, do it again, Kim. I like that. Everybody. <laughs> so um, we're not neutral. It's God who has granted this. And even Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it said it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. Because of his kindness and grace and mercy towards you, he pulls you in to repentance. Here's a difficult one. As John builds on these things. And here's, here's the most difficult one in John. Jesus says in John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So when people say, that, oh, if I see a sign, I'll believe. Possibly, but possibly not. So that, why didn't they believe in him? So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So now we get into Isaiah, I think it's chapter 10 and chapter 6 he quotes from. Lord, who has believed what, we, what he heard from me, from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So he ends the quote. Now John puts his commentary in. Therefore, they could not believe. You see, they didn't believe when they saw the miracles. So John quotes Isaiah. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, this is Isaiah 6, where, where Isaiah sees the holiness of God. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah 6 is about God having put up with Israel's rebellion for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years. And finally he says, I'm done. Now comes the consequences. You chose rebellion. It comes with consequences. And he told Isaiah to go preach. When he said, who, who shall I send? Isaiah goes, me, send me. Isaiah said, how long shall I preach, Lord? And, he, and, and Isaiah actually preached for about 50 years. And what happened at the end of those 50 years? Nobody believed. God sent them into captivity. 
the Assyrian captivity and the Babylon captivity. Because he said, you had your chance. Now you can't believe. You see, it's his kindness that leads you to repentance. But at some point in rebellion of humanity, God says, my kindness is over. Now comes consequences. You get what you ask for. And that's a scary concept. It, it, should, it should scare us. Yes. I was going to say scare the hell out of you, but I can't say that. We're being videotaped. <clears throat> So how does, this ha- how does it happen? How do I get the ability to believe? If I'm not neutral, if I'm a slave to sin, as Paul would say, dead in your sins, how, how, does I, how do my eyes get opened? Well, we got a little thing here in Acts where Paul goes to Philippi and he goes down to the river because Paul always goes to a synagogue first when he comes into a town to preach, always. But there evidently isn't a synagogue in Philippi, so he heads down to the river where he finds a pa- place of prayer. And and a woman named Lydia was listening, as Paul's telling the gospel, was li- listening. She was a seller of purple fabrics from the city of Thyatira and a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. If we're slaves to sin, at some point, God opens our heart to see. Then we respond. And it raises all sorts of other questions about, well, can I not respond? Great question. We need to search the scriptures for that. But once you respond, you're in. If it's a genuine trust in Jesus, he will never cast you out and he will never lose you, but raise you up on the last day. So important takeaways here. There's so much, I'm sure it's raised lots of questions. If you want, email me. I'll I'll give you some good books to read. Important takeaways. Do not diminish the sovereign power of God to defend man's responsibility to believe. Okay, we don't want to say, you know what? In order to really hold up man's freedom to believe, I have to minimize God's sovereignty to where he's simply a God who's waiting and he's passive and I'm active. That would be a huge mistake because if we minimize God's sovereignty, what do we do with the rest of the universe and the world history? Is he, is he got a plan that he's working or is he simply waiting as the world runs out of control? See, if we're going to reduce it in one area, then we're going to reduce it in all areas. But the opposite is true. Do not diminish your responsibility to, def- to believe to defend God's sovereign power. Both sides of the coin are true. They're both true. Today we're focusing in on God's side of the coin. Rather, what we do is we praise God for the great power of salvation because no one would believe if he did not enable them. If he didn't open your eyes, you'd still be a slave to sin. And we must always be ready to present the gospel because Romans chapter 10 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the the word of Christ, meaning the gospel preaching Jesus, just like the lady in Philippi, um, Lydia. Paul preached and God opened her heart to understand it, to respond to it. We're the agents to bring the means by which people believe. It's the preaching of God's word. And when I say preaching, I'm not talking about getting up here and screaming at people. I'm talking about you sharing with other people the love of Jesus. It's that means that God then opens people's eyes and hearts to respond. And so there's a real sense, and I'm limited understanding, 
If I don't present, they don't have an opportunity. God has called upon his church, his people to do this. So, I'm gonna re- I wrote this, I want to read it so I get it right. In my inability to see both sides of the coin at the same time, I personally will always lean heavy on God's side because scripture compels me to. I'm going to trust in him more than in me. To do so is not to diminish man's choice. It is to properly put our choice in the right scriptural light. From a scriptural point of view, there is a sense of God is waiting. It even says that in 2 Peter. God is waiting for you to repent. But not from an uncertainty perspective. He's not waiting because he doesn't know. He's waiting from a human understanding of time perspective. That's Peter's understanding of God waiting. But God knows the future. He knows it all. God knows who belongs to him. I open this with a quote by A.W. Tozer. I want to close this with a quote by A.W. Tozer, a much longer one. This comes from his book, God's Pursuit of Man. He has many books. He has Knowledge of the Holy. He has the book, The Pursuit of God. He wrote another one called God's Pursuit of Man, How God Chases You Down. And um, my son, Luke, over here, was um, in my office the other day when I was preparing this message, and he just pulled books off my shelf and was reading them, and he said, look at this. He gave me this quote. I said, oh, that's divine. I'm using this one Sunday. So thanks, Luke. So listen to this. It'll be on the screen. This is filled with things to think about. God made us in his likeness, and one mark of that likeness is our free will. We hear God say, whoever will, let him come. We know by bitter experience the woe of an unsurrendered will and the blessedness or terror which may hang upon our human choice. But back of it all, behind it all, and preceding it is the sovereign right of God to call saints and determine human destinies. The master choice is his. The secondary choice is ours. Salvation is from our side. Salvation is from our side a choice. But from a divine side, it is a seizing upon, an apprehending, a conquest of the Most High God. Our accepting and willing are reactions rather than actions. The right of determination must always remain with God. God has indeed lent to every man the power to lock his heart and stalk away into self, into his self-chosen night as he has lent every man the ability to respond to his overtures of grace. But while the no choice may be ours, the yes choice is always God's. He is the author of our faith and must be the finisher. Only by grace can we continue to believe. We can persist in willing God's will only as we are seized upon by a benign power that will overcome our natural bent to unbelief. He probably wrote this 60, 70 years ago. And that word benign power, because the word benign today means powerless. It changes, and the words change meaning. I looked up, it used to mean good. His good power. So we can persist in willing God's will only as we are seized upon by that good power that will overcome our natural bent to unbelief. The result for this today is, I, I don't mind creating tension in your thinking. I really don't. 
if that pushes you to think God gave, what do I always say? God gave you a brain. He gave you his word. He gave you the Holy Spirit to guide you in truth. And he gave you the people of God to think with through that truth. So I, I hope I've encouraged you to think deep about this. It's honorable to God to say, God, I don't understand this. I'm not sure I like it. I'm going to search your word. I'm going to talk to my fellow believers and work through this. That is so honoring to him. So do that. Email me, call me, and I'll tell you where I'm still struggling in lots of areas in this thing. But what I want to do today is make sure we let God be God. We are the creatures that can't get above the ceiling. He is infinite, and he deserves many things from us, but one of them is worship. Let's do that now. Stand up.